Welcome back to another episode of the Bad Activist Podcast, talking all about the intersections of activism, art, colonialization, communication, and all the good stuff. The Bad Activist Podcast is brought to you by Climate Control Projects. For today's episode, we are joined by Tali, climate justice activist and graphic designer, and Dana from Haven for Artists, which is an all-inclusive queer feminist art collective. So to start, I would love for you to introduce yourself, kind of tell us about your work and how you started, and maybe Tali, you can start and then we'll pass it on to Dana. Yeah, sure. Thanks so much for having me. Um, yeah, I'm Tolly. Also, my full name is Tomaya Gregory, and I am, as you say, a climate justice activist based in the UK and England. And I also do a lot of artwork. So, kind of dipping in and out of the two and combining them where it fits. I started kind of my activism journey after learning more about the sustainability of the fashion industry because that was the industry I wanted to break into when I was growing up. I wanted to be a fashion designer and then kind of came to a realization that the climate crisis is kind of this all-encompassing issue that um, is impacted by the fashion industry and many other aspects of our life. So I decided that's where I wanted to channel all of my energy and I've been involved in organizing and direct action and things like that over the past couple of years. And like I said, also in artwork, I'm mostly known for my gift stickers on social media, which people like to use on Instagram. And yeah, that's that's a, a very brief summary of what I do. Also, fun little fact uh, is that Tolly actually designed the Bad Activist logo, uh, yeah. which is really nice. <laughs> um, and then next, Dana, do you want to introduce yourself and also uh, the collective Haven for Artists? Hello, my name is Dana Ash. I'm the executive director of Haven. Uh, we are based in Beirut, Lebanon. We work at the intersection of art and activism, uh, utilizing art as a tool for not just dissemination of information, but for advocacy, for campaigns, for street interventions, and for direct action uh, in regards to social change. We work on different levels. Uh, we work on, first of all, as always community-based, but we work in the sense of creating community centers depending on what our community needs at that point. So before the explosion um, in Beirut on August 4th and the financial crisis of this year, we used to have community centers that were um, basically one of the only safe spaces for queer and uh, women's rights activists and artists in the entire area. Um, that was very heavily impacted by the Beirut blast. So now we work on different projects and different initiatives in order to advance human rights and women's rights and LGBTQI rights in the region and in Lebanon in particular. Uh, we create, we just film, we produced a film, we do campaigns, we host shelter. After the Beirut blast, we turned our offices into shelter spaces for different individuals. So we basically are whatever our community needs us as long as it always is unapologetic with feminist agenda um, and basically making sure that it's the person who is completely and personally involved is the person that is the one speaking. Thank you so much for that. I actually heard about uh, your organization last year. I accidentally got invited to an event Tori was speaking at and it was kind of like a um, speed dating type of event with different speakers from different organizations. And I don't remember if it was you who was there or somebody else, but I ended up being in a breakout room with somebody from Haven for Artists and I was just so blown away by uh, the work that you do. And I feel like the introduction I got was only 
like a little scope of what you do because obviously it's so much. Uh, I think this introduction doesn't even cover <laughs> everything that's really <laughs> happening. Um, but yeah, I was so impressed and so inspired that I've always, I just never forgot the name and I've always kept you in the back of my mind. I always like to say I'm really into art, but I'm not an artsy person. If this was um, the past and I had a lot of money, I would be one of those sugar daddy people who like sponsors artists because they love art so much, but they don't have any like artistic <laughs> skills themselves. Um, and I've been really interested to learn more about like the way that art and activism intersect because I, I think art is such a powerful tool not only to communicate about different issues but also to actually engage people in a different way especially so because i come from more of the environmental climate justice space i feel like it's a lot of numbers and it's a lot of statistics and stuff but personally like if you just give me a beautiful piece of artwork with some information in it it will stick so much better to me so i thought it would be really interesting to bring on somebody who is actually more doing the art and somebody who's working around that as a collective and also i've just really really wanted to have haven for artists in some type of collaboration um so yeah i hope we can have a really um nice chat uh so i guess something i want to want to ask you uh, i guess this is more going to be like kishana learning from two really cool people <laughs> i think it's a two-way street <laughs> yeah 100 i would love to hear how, what you think is so powerful about actually artistic spaces and um artistry in connecting different justice issues and communicating and creating spaces because oh there are just so many different avenues to it so it's not really a well formulated question but yeah i would just love to hear you talk about the intersection of art and activism and how you see yourself and in this case also the collective in that in particular when it comes to art and activism you cannot separate the two right it's it's practically impossible uh art is a reflection of the time and space that you're in uh, it's a reflection of your expression of your experience and of your life uh, you cannot separate that or divorce that from reality and the reality is oppressive and the reality is intersectional and the reality is racist and the reality is an apartheid state the reality is a lot of things that we need to discuss i think one of the main things that we need to always understand as as uh, as artists and as activists, is that art itself was co-opted by capitalism. It was in if itself was co-opted by the elite, by class. It's always been that, but originally artists were not rich. Artists were people who just didn't know how else to speak and didn't have the space to do so without it. And of course, we also know that it, it reinforced misogyny because it was always men that was put in the position of that. So art has always been a reflection of the reality. And therefore, people, whether we like it or not, refer to books and literature, refer to paintings, refer to media, and then question how women dispossess themselves or how women feel hypersexualized when there has never been a Renaissance painting not depicting a woman either as a Virgin Mary or a whore. I mean, you have two choices. You have nothing else in between. And you always have these kind of uh, simulations in which you are meant to see yourself in this piece, although this piece does not exist in reality. 
So I do believe it's extremely imperative that we realize and recognize the power and potency of art to shape our understanding of, of both our rights and our structures and how we stand and where we stand and what it is, and whether we like it or not to understand the appropriation of art for propaganda, um, for how white supremacists use it, how, how crazy racial, I don't, want to, I don't want to say racist because that word is too small, you know, it's just um, hateful human beings, how they employ art for these things. And it's, it, it seems ridiculous for us not to use the things that liberate us to also point out how they're using it to oppress us. When you were saying about environmentalists and that like it's so difficult to be able to communicate sometimes because there's numbers and there's text and there's sometimes people that just don't want to delve into it. Um, I think artists now are taking that a little further with ecofeminism. I mean, there's there's a large wave of artists that are refusing to buy acrylic paint and um, and and hurtful paint to the environment. Uh, we have a particular artist that we work with, Mirella Salemi, here in Beirut. She's an incredible ecofeminist. Um, all of her paint is made by her from nature, so she uses stones and pigments and recreates her paints. We've hosted workshops to teach artists how to do that because that in of itself is a tool and a skill and a vocational capacity that alleviates a kind of financial strain and creates sustainability and reconnects you to nature because we are not meant to live in concrete jungles. They want us to, but that is not the intention um, of, of how we would, uh, if we could have. I mean, colonization did that to us. Modernization, as they like to call it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, I'm sorry, you, you caught me at a time of when I'm literally, I'm hosting, I'm part of a performance tonight and we're talking about Mahmoud Darwish, we're talking about the, the Palestinian, basically the hell that the Palestinians have been going through for 73 years. And part of this is discussing in particular the methods the West had used to create the narrative. Um, and that is, as we always say, history is always written by the, the victor. But that it also reflects in the way that the victor after the victory continues to appropriate texts of Arab writers, but only to make them famous through Western eyes. So you have Mahmoud Darwish and Edward Said, some of the greatest intellectuals of our time, wrote about Orient, wrote the book Orientalism. They had an incredible input. They were the voice of the Palestinian uh, liberation movement. And these men were co-opted by the West. And now their theory is used as theory and forgotten that it's actually physically there happening. So you have all these academic somewhat referring to it as if something in the past. So therefore, basing their uh, academic thesis and crap all over, uh, all on Edward Said and Mahmoud Darwish, yet erasing the identity in which they wrote about. So it's extremely intertwined. Uh, they co-opt art, they co-opt literature, they co-opt these facets of our everyday life. Um, and it is the responsibility of the artist, it's the role and the responsibility of the artist to also put the paintbrush to reality to also reflect the truth um, and to make sure that it is not used as a homogeneous kind of understanding of what's going on um, in whatever country it may be. It's about dialogue and communication. And the only way to do that is through art because A, it's not confrontational. It allows people to let it simmer. They could walk away without having a physical fight, but it stays, it sticks in their head. It lingers long enough for them to double think something. Um, but at the same time, it makes it impossible to avoid the reality. And this is why social media is so powerful now with what's going on with, with uh, the occupied Palestine, historic occupied Palestine, yeah. is that people cannot shy away from what's going on on the ground. They're no longer for waiting for USA Today and the New York Times to tell them how these people are so bad and they deserve to die. They're seeing a bunch of children being murdered. And it just makes no sense that no matter who you stand for or where you're from or what you think, any murder of any persons or people. I think we all stand vehemently against the murder of the indigenous people of Americas when they had the Trail of Tears. We learn about it in history, but we forget that those were real people and it's repeating itself. So that's the role of the artist is, is, is to be relevant and to be real. 
I don't think I can really add much more to that. That was, I'm just like, I'm just going to sit here and listen. Yeah. I'm, yeah. That was just like, oh, girl crush. <laughs> this is amazing. <laughs> yeah. But I think it's interesting because the, um, the role of social media, especially in communicating with um, graphical art and digital art is becoming much more prominent. And Tolly, you're actually a lot more active, obviously, as a graphic designer in the Instagram spaces as well. How do you think that kind of has influenced your work, but also your activism? Yeah, it's a good question. I think like touching on a couple of things you both mentioned kind of about like dialogue and numbers and things like that. I think, you know, one part of my work has been kind of like using art and social media as a tool so for example with my gift stickers I sort of suddenly realized people were using them all over the world whether it was just people like me or whether it's like um I'd seen activists in like Brazil and places very far away from me but it was kind of yeah they're using it to have that conversation in a really easy and accessible way um and I think that's very powerful but then on the other hand like you say like having that dialogue in kind of an emotional way is really important especially when it comes to topics like the climate crisis which is what I focus on where yeah a lot of information around it is you know very sciencey and very factual and I'm not all that scientific like I I'm <laughs> I'm not well trained in that um and so art is my one way of connecting and communicating with others about how I feel and that really does have power and weight to it and using social media is the way to amplify those messages and have those conversations and allow people to sit with those feelings for a bit longer so there's kind of there's two sides to it if any of that made sense <laughs> yeah I think also it it is a tool like it is a tool that can go both ways like any other tool that's out there it can be used for quote-unquote good and quote-unquote bad because that's not really the binary that we want to go for um so that's really interesting but i would love to hear from uh each of you what you think how you think it can be used to actually find and create solutions to um, the different justice issues we have. I mean, I think it's a very powerful communicator. So how can we use it to actually find and create solutions? I think, well, not to toot my own horn and put a plug in here, but I'm actually, I'm just in the process of, of launching my own podcast um, called Idealistically, which is basically a whole idea of um, having conversations about creating new futures and inspiring people to like start imagining what the world can hopefully look like. Because I think often we do get bogged down in like all the bad stuff that is happening. And that's so valid because we need to talk about it. Otherwise, you know, nothing's going to change. Um, but yeah, that's really on my mind at the moment is creativity and imagination and even just like you say, having conversations about what it could look like. Um, but one example of this being really powerful was last year during kind of the protests around Black Lives Matter. I remember a lot more conversations were happening on social media about like defunding the police and abolition and stuff like that. And I've feel really bad that I can't remember the artist's name, but I remember seeing an artist who had sketched out what the uniforms and um, what the individuals and groups would look like if we replaced the police with different 
structures like community support and people who focus on mental health rather than, you know, sending the police in when someone's really struggling. And I remember seeing that and just thinking that's so amazing because now I can actually visualize what an alternative to this system could look like. And that right there is like, that's powerful. Like that is really helping us kind of understand it. And even for people, you know, it's, I guess, the art is for the people who are sciencey too, because they might not actually be able to put what they know into an image. Um, and so that can be the role of the artist in that sense. So yeah, I thought that was just amazing. And I always think back to them, like, we need more of those ideas and visuals out there. I love that. I think that's so, so true. I think also a very big role of the artist is to actually, I think they are actually the ones that um, imagine the future. And I think that's so important as well. I was also wondering, um, maybe Dana, you can answer this question, um, because I think as the, um, even for Artists Collective, you're kind of entrenched in different, yeah, different spaces and different movements. But when it comes to it, everything is connected. So that's also kind of, <laughs> are you really? <laughs> I'm waiting for you to build up to that. <laughs> But yeah, that's also where I was going. I feel like it's a powerful communication tool um, and it's used obviously in different forms and different movements. But when we look at the actual problems we have, the actual just the problems, I think at least they all kind of, they all have the same foundation. They evolve in different ways, but their root is the same. They all stem basically from white supremacy, colonialism, it's all like connected to that. I think a lot of the injustice that we see is all connected to that. Um, but basically what I'm getting at, because this is going nowhere, <laughs> is how we can create um, so I, kind I, of- I'm gonna start it off for you and exactly what you're saying. Yes, um, thank you. <laughs> <laughs> just because I actually shared this just today. Um, and this is by, uh, I, I believe, um, it was so overshared by the time it got to me. I don't know who the original post is from, but um, they said, black folk don't have a state problem. Palestinians don't have a Zionism problem. Mexicans don't have an immigration problem. Muslims do not have an Islamophobia problem. Native and Aboriginal peoples don't have a genocide problem. We all have a white supremacy problem. And it's basically dumbs it down to that, right? So because whether we like it or not, the term savage is used in the UK history books, the French history books, the American history books. So they never say Native Americans and they end it there. They say Native savages. They say Indian savages. Uh, sorry, I'm going to say the UK a lot because, you know, stem of the colonial settler fun idea. <laughs> So proud. I'm so proud of where I come from. I'm from the Netherlands. We're also great. Yeah, but yeah. Yeah, it started in the UK. I believe it was 14 something. And it was the first premise of expanding because it was based on industrialization, right? So it was based on this massive wave of control. We need lots of resources. We need to basically expand modernity, right? Because this is the whole kind of emblem of colonialism, whether it's modern colonialism or, you know, the colonialism that we love to read about where, you know, most European countries are funding Arabs to talk about decolonialism where we're like, sweetie, you're still here. <laughs> you haven't left. Um, you call colonized technically technically Iraq is colonized with the US technically it's under occupation there is and I'm going to read this quote because I was just astounded when I read this today uh, for my research and it said 
Edward Said wrote an article before his death in 2003 for the U.S. invasion of Iraq, and this is Mahmoud Darwish's response to that after Said's death. It says, Darwish perhaps refers to the news publication of the U.S. media just before the U.S. invasion of Iraq in 2003, that a U.S. assistant professor, assistant professor in law working at the New York University called Noah Fledman will be in charge of drafting the new Iraqi constitution. The news mentioned that this assistant professor is highly qualified in Islamic law. He knows Arabic, but he's a religious Jew. My response is, it's not about, and this we have to say it right off the bat, it is not about the religion facet. It's about that you've never lived here. You're not Iraqi. You're not an Arab. You live in New York. It goes on to say, Saeed then adds that he never went to Iraq and he does not have the practical and legal background in the actual problem of drafting a constitution, especially in Iraq after the war. It is an immediate and obvious practice of superiority and contempt, not only for Iraq, but also for Arab lawyers and Muslim scholars who could have done this in a more useful way that serves the future of Iraq and not of colonialism. So of course they're not gonna put somebody to actually speak about advancing one's culture. Um, and there's another writer called Fatima Mernisi. She's a sociologist and theologist that is ba was based in Morocco. God rest her soul. She was one of the greatest feminists that ever hit uh, this region. And she's illegal in most of the region as books are being sold. Uh, her, one of my favorite books for her is called The Veil and the Male Elite, A Feminist Interpretation of Islam. And one of the things she said is colonialism is steeped in mononarity. So when you're colonized for a very long time and you finally get rid of your oppressor, what is your first reaction going to be? To hold on to the past, right? To, be, to differentiate yourself from your oppressor as much as possible. So if your oppressor's main slogan is capitalism and modernity, your slogan is going to be fuck both. No matter what, even if you believe it or not, it's just about saying, no, I don't want anything to do with you anymore. Get off my land. And that distance of it also distanced the Arab from their capacity to produce and progress. And of course, colonization never ended and they exhausted our resources. We all know what they did in Iraq and what they're doing in Saudi and what they're doing in Yemen. And what we're fully aware. Um, and we just want the rest of the world to know whether we like it or not. The fact that Israel is here is just a proxy for the U.S. Um, most of the instability in the, the region started when Israel came here. Whether we like it or not, it's a Zionist project. It is not a Jewish project. If it was Jewish, they were living here way before. They lived all over. There's a cemetery right next to my house for Jewish persons in Lebanon. There's a synagogue in Lebanon. We were fine. They all lived here. Who expelled them, which is part of the whole context that they use. This is part of the entire brainwashing that's used by colonials against the Native Americans. It's used, uh, it was used by the Italians against the Ethiopians. It was used by the Germans. It's used by all of them, which is we're here to bring you modernity. We're here to advance and civilize you because there was no people here, you were all savages. And we made you people, which is what Israel likes to say. And I don't want to call it Israel because it's not Israel. It is colonized, it is historic Palestine. Um, to this day, we don't believe in this uh, pseudo state because the pseudo state went by force. The pseudo state never existed prior to 48 and therefore shouldn't exist after. Um, it has always been Jews, Christians, Muslims, all of us living, Druze as well. I don't know if people know even of the religious minority of Druze in historic Palestine. But we've always lived here together. And when Israel was established, here was a call for all the Jews to come to Israel. They forced them to leave Lebanon. Lebanon didn't force them to leave. They literally made them leave Lebanon to settle in Israel. And then they made all Arabs leave. 
And, they, and this is what, a bunch of white men who sat down together and said this was the best thing for this country? What country? It was no country before. And it's the same thing with, with Lebanon when it was colonized by the French. It was two Frenchmen who sat in a room, wrote our constitution and said, here, here you go, here's your independence. What, the, what about us? <laughs> I think I have more valid input. Lebanon to this day has a penal code, an article called 534. Article 534 of the Lebanese Penal Code criminalizes LGBTQI individuals as against the laws of nature to this day until 2021. We are fighting that law, which was instated by the French. We never had that law before them. The Ottomans never had that fucking law. The law came in after. With colonization, with the superiority of the white man, we all know that people of color and aboriginals always believed in the two spirits. Arabs have been known for talking. I mean, Rumi, Persia, is known for, for queer love. We've existed for a very long time. It was the colonization of burning of libraries by the West, by the colonizers. Because I don't want to make it all about the West. It's about those colonizing entities. Because they're entities, you know? They're elite white entities that want supremacy, that believe that they know what's best for the world and they're going to make it better by ruling it. Um, and it's just like any other dictator just in a suit. Right? So we went away from the tyrant with, you know, the massive armies that just butchered everyone, and we just went into diplomats and lobbies. But it's the same devil, just in a different outfit. Thank you for that. I mean, I hope the people who are going to listen to the, to this will sit with that. <laughs> I, mean, I, I think we should all coexist. I think there's a large uh, misunderstanding of what is a state versus its people. Uh, and what is a religion versus the nation? Because a nation, this nationalism has always been a problem, no matter how you turn it, no matter who you spin it to. Nationalism in of itself, this creation of borders and the dictating of borders by singular individuals, no matter who they may be, is a problem. And whether I like it or not, I'm in the Middle East, I am surrounded, you know, no matter how I turn. Uh, there are proxies that are funded, there are different wars that are happening, there are different things that are, and we cannot ignore that this is not something that just exists on the other side of this wall that really doesn't involve us. It leaks into our every being in our everyday life. I mean, as I'm speaking to you, there's Israeli planes flying over Lebanon. Like, you can't disconnect from that. Uh, we wake up in the middle of the night because they try to scare us occasionally and they fly, fly fighter jets from here to Syria. Uh, how, do you, how do you disconnect from that and just move on and talk about, you know, like, oh yeah, I'm, I wanna save the planet. Yeah, but I have urgency now because the planet might not survive their next war. And neither will we. Mm, yeah, thank you. Thank you for that. And like all of that. So to close off, I was just wondering if maybe both of you can either give some advice or next steps to folks who want to maybe are artists who want to get involved in communicating activism and leading by making art and also just like plug yourself honestly <laughs> how can we help you <laughs> what can people do i think um actually part of it is questioning like what art means in relation to activism because i think often like, I don't know, when people think of the word art, they might think, like, paintings in a gallery or, like, musicians, or, like, people who see, like, really detailed, like, portraiture and all the, like, more classic examples of what art is. But art in activism can also mean, like, graphic designers who can just help really quickly put a flyer together that is going to be 
posted all over a city or a town or whatever it's people who can make like event images to go on social media it's people who can create the identity for movements and that is one really way easy way to an accessible way I think to enter within those movement spaces like we need people who are good at that stuff and I think it's finding that space and finding the skills that you do have that can work for other people like for example, within my climate activism group, I'm like the graphic designer person. When someone needs a poster, they come to me. And in a way, like for me, it would be really helpful if there were more people jumping out and being like, actually, I know how to do this. I can help you because otherwise it's always on me and I burn out from how many things I'm having to design for people. And you get a bit fed up of it at the end of the day because it's like, oh, it's me again. Um, so, yeah use your skills where you have them and that is a form of activism like people aren't going to know a protest is happening unless there's a, a flyer up somewhere so it's really essential and I think when we turn it on our head and look at it that way then we're going to have a lot more people joining our movements because there are a lot of people who know how to use photoshop <laughs> <laughs> I would definitely second that 100%. I mean, the Lebanese revolution sparked here in October 2019. Um, and the first reaction of all artists was street interventions. Haven turned its community center into a meeting space for all civil society, for artists, uh, for creatives to just start thinking and like, what are we going to do? What's going to happen in this landscape? Um, and, and that is the, the premise of art is also dialogue and being a safe platform to discuss these things and to use your tools in a way that not just articulate your feelings, but also reflect the reality that of the situation that you're in. Um, I've done more posters for protests than I don't know what to do with. And I'm not a graphic <laughs> designer, I'm a writer. <laughs> so I end up doing the copywriting for it. And they're like, yeah, can you also just, you know? Um, and so I get you. And But I think it's also the only way we can continue is so we realize that all of our tools, all of our skills need to be used to dismantle the master's house in the great words of Audre Lorde. We don't need to use the master's tools, but we do have our own. Um, and we are utilizing tools that the master was not aware that we could use like social media, uh, like the fact that um, being colonized has taught me three languages. You know, uh, I was colonized by the French, so I speak French, I speak Arabic, and, um, you know, I had to, uh, basically, my parents uh, immigrated after, during the Lebanese Civil War to give us a better life, and that gave me English. So it's always through these elements that we end up learning. So these are the master's tools, in a way, but they can be used to advance a different cause, which is the reality of people uh, being oppressed on a daily basis. I think tools in of themselves can only go so far if your intent and your heart is not there. And collective organizing, community organizing, understanding that it all comes back to the community. Um, it's not just about cops. It's not just, it's about food drives. It's about being together. It's about discussions. It's about all of these things. Uh, and to be an artist that is inactive, um, except in a gallery, then you're not active at all because then you're only serving the elite. And babe, we don't need any more of you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, to be quite honest, like we all do galleries. I'm, I'm a gallery artist as well, but I'm not just a gallery artist. You know, you have to be understanding that, yes, I need to do this to survive because of the landscape of capitalism and patriarchy and how it's done this to me. But I also need to know that, all right, since I got this gallery and I can stand on my own two feet for another month, how can I help my community? That probably is not standing. And mm -hmm. we just got to keep using these things. And that's why I think Haven is, is super uh, 
based on community because it's not just about Dana having time, it's the community giving time to each other. So when Dana has five minutes, I'm gonna give that five minutes, but whatever is lacking, the other 55 minutes can be covered by the rest of the community. Um, and that's the whole premise is we will only burn out if we start thinking that our input will not advance the cause and it does. Uh, it's not just voting. Voting does jack shit in the end. We have to dismantle the entire system. <laughs> we got to know how to start first, which is first informing each other about what's going on, about how much pain we're going through or what achievements we've gotten to and how do we proceed to dismantle whatever systems that oppress us, whatever systemic racism that exists. And all of that is, is the responsibility of the artist. I'm not alone, my, but yeah. <laughs> my friend, um, Michaela Loach, who listeners to this podcast will probably be very aware of her work. She often says she doesn't actually like the phrase dismantle. It should be more destroy because dismantle, <laughs> kind, of, dismantle kind of sounds like you can build it back up like an Ikea, like flat pack. Like if I dismantle my table, I can just put it back together. But if you destroy it, no, you've got to build something new. So that's yeah, <laughs> pretty good use. I'm definitely <laughs> never going to use dismantle again. We are going to destroy uh, <laughs> That is definitely a better word. I mean, people already think I'm a little too intimidating when I start talking about uh, all of the causes. So maybe the word destroy would freak them out a little bit. But hey, I've never shied away from that. So let's let's do that. Um, but yeah, abolish, destroy, change it all because it's obviously not working except for less than 20% of the world's population. Um, and yeah. It's time for the the marginalized majority to to take its rightful place in power. Yeah, and I'll also just add another thing. Like I said earlier, just start imagining, like take a time out of your day to just think actually what is the world that I want because we're never going to get that if actually no one has a clue. Um, so yeah, spend your time just thinking what, what could my day look like in like 10, 20 years if I really put my mind to it and we will work together. I think that can be a very grounding thing to, to think about. Thank you both so much. I feel like, honestly, this is not enough time to have an actually solid conversation. But that just means that there is a lot of scope to invite you both again. I think uh, that would be really nice. So thank you so much for being on this podcast. I had a really good talk with you. If you want to plug your socials, go ahead and let's round up. Uh, I'll go first. Uh, you can follow my the community organization that I'm a part of, uh, the director of and a part of, uh, Haven for Artists. And that's it. It's at Haven for Artists. Follow us on Instagram. We're super active. Uh, we're very, very vocal. Uh, and we are unapologetic. And you can also follow me at Dana underscore Ash. Also on Instagram. Nobody uses Facebook anymore. <laughs> yeah, you can find me on Instagram and Twitter at, at Tolmeia, which is T-O-L-M-E-I-A. And you can find my new um, podcast, which is launching very soon or will already be out by the time this is up, um, which is called Idealistically. Um, and on Instagram, it's at IdealisticallyPod. And on Twitter, it's at IdealisticallyP because their character limit is a lot less. <laughs> well, thank you guys so much for, for being here. And I hope you have a very good rest of your day.